0: The University of Miami Law School Entertainment Arts and Sports Law program presents the Leadership Game Plan. I'm Executive Producer and Program Director Greg Levy,
1: and now over to our host, Miami Law graduate and adjunct faculty member, Coach Mark Tressman. I believe that everyone can lead, no matter who you are or what you do. I believe, just like quarterbacks, leaders are not born, they are developed. With so many platforms to speak our minds, there are countless ways to lead and impact the lives of others. So how we lead in this accelerating and interconnected world will determine our present and our future. That's why leadership today matters more than ever. Welcome to the Leadership Game Plan, where we go beyond the X's and O's through the unique lens of our accomplished guests. I'm your host, Mark Tressman. Let's get started.
0: My style hasn't changed, but I've learned a lot along the way. You know, uh, I've learned many lessons. The biggest lesson is the biggest mistakes I made were when I was talking when I should have been listening.
1: I've known Tom Friedman for at least 50 years. Growing up in the same town of St. Louis Park, Minnesota, I didn't know him personally, but we had some mutual friends. And then in my late 20s, I'd begun to hear about our hometown's Tom Friedman and his rise in the world of journalism and I took a certain pride in his success. Then in 1989, just weeks before I coached in the AFC Championship game in Denver as the offensive coordinator in Cleveland, a mutual friend called me to tell me about Tom's latest book, From Beirut to Jerusalem. I had been a political science major in college, so I look forward to reading the book that offseason. Tom and I will talk more about our hometown shortly but after reading his book, I not only enjoyed the content, but also Tom's unique ability to simplify so many complex, interconnected issues. Tom's inherent skill and talent resonated with me as a football coach, a game that is not only blocking and tackling, but a complex science as well, where making it simple for players to digest is so important. Tom Friedman is special. He's very special. Not just because he's from my hometown, but because he has been on a journey like no other. Over the last 30 years, as a columnist for the New York Times, a three-time Pulitzer Prize winner, a writer of more than a dozen books, and a frequent guest on multiple news, Thomas has traveled the world interviewing and developing authentic relationships with some of the most influential leaders of our time to report and comment on foreign affairs, global trade, the Middle East, globalization, and environmental issues. We will lean into that experience and perspective today. We are so lucky today to welcome my friend, Tom Friedman, to our first podcast. Tom, all I can say is wow, and, and how cool this is, you know, welcome to what for me is really a bucket list opportunity and a privilege to have you with us. So thanks for joining us today on our first podcast.
0: Mark, it's great to be with you. Um, uh, just two old guys in the hood getting together.
1: That's exactly right. I mean, the last time we we were together, uh, we had dinner at Caves, one of your favorite places, and we're in the middle of dinner, and you pulled out your typewriter and started typing, which I thought was kind of interesting. But uh, you know, the reason why you know, you know we're here today is, you know, I've been a coach for a long time, and you've been in your line of work for a long time. And as a coach, I realized coaching was teaching. But over the last decade or so, I realized it's more than that. It's teaching leadership. And I am just hungry to learn more. And now in the room, I've got what I consider a world expert. I mean, you are really a world expert on a topic that might be the topic of our, our time, leadership. So, uh, you know, I wanted to just get started with that. You've traveled the world. You've met with leaders in the United States and all over the world for over 40 years at different times and different places. So maybe we can just start simply with, you know, what is leadership? you know, as you see it from your point of view in just really simple terms to get it started?
0: Well, you know, there's no one definition. Um, uh, you would, would say that uh, the best leaders um, uh, have certain things in common. Um, uh, one is that they have a vision of where they want to take their people, their institution, uh, or their team. You know? um, uh, the second is that they're ready and able to make their decisions that are not popular, um, uh, and the third, you'd say, um, they trust their people with the truth. Um, they trust their people, their team with the truth, and uh, because when you trust people with the truth,
1: they trust you. Yeah, I agree with all that. That Tom and I'm, I've always thought that leaders are influencers. You know, they're people that influence others, and and you do that. You do that in your columns. You influence people in your interviews, whether you're being interviewed or you're interviewing others. So I'm calling you a leader, and uh, I just wanted to ask you: Do you view yourself as a leader? Because I think that if you're influencing people, you're leading. And uh, if you do, you know, how do you? What is your value set? What are your core values or your non-negotiables as you work through your day? Well,
0: people will sometimes say to me, you know, wow, you you know how much influence you have? And um, to which my uh, standard answer is, let me tell you something. I do not wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and say, wow, look look at me. Um, I've got this perch on Mount Olympus at the New York Times. I I actually do just the opposite. Because when you do that in my business, Mark, that's when you actually stop talking to people. That's when you start throwing thunderbolts down from Mount Olympus. Because you're the guy, you're the man, you're, you know, whatever. And that's death in my business. So um, I, I think it, it, to the extent that I've influenced, it's because I keep my nose to the grindstone. I call things as they see them. And I build my opinions on reporting um, uh, in the world. You know, being a reporter, my motto has always been, if you don't go, you don't know. And being a reporter doesn't guarantee you'll know. Um, but it does reduce the odds that you'll get it wrong if you actually go to places. always... I've tried to build my journalism, but um, uh, I think it's very important to lead in my business to take in enough feedback so you hear criticism because we all make mistakes. I sure have, Um, but not taking in too much criticism because otherwise you start writing columns for the critics and not actually for your wider audience.
1: So it's a very delicate balance. Sure. So let me, let me uh, put the question another way for you, see how I can get a little more out of it. Um, When you write or you interview you, you in your own mind, and I've seen you write about this. I know you do. You have a value set. You have some core values. So I'm still going to assume you're a leader and you're going to take the humble approach. And I, and I appreciate that knowing who you are, but so, but you do have a set of values that you, Travel the world with that you talk to people with, and you write your columns with. Can you talk yeah, about that um, a little so bit? So I do
0: have a value set. I, I do think as a as a columnist, you need to kind of have three things. You have to have a value set. Um, what is it you think is right, just, and best for the people, communities, or world you're writing about? You have to have a uh, a working hypothesis about how the machine works, which is how what are the, how do the big gears and pulleys of the world actually work? So because what you're trying to do is take your value set and push the machine in that direction and so if you don't know the machine works you either won't push it or you'll push it in the wrong direction and lastly you have to be very attentive to people and how they're affected when the machine moves one way or another so my value set is really a combination of where i was from and what i learned um, so um, i grew up in a time and place uh in minnesota uh, as you did in the uh in my case the, the you know 1953 i was born there I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and uh, the most uh, overriding lesson I took from that experience is that I actually saw pluralism work Um, uh, because uh, our families, you know, were were started in the north side of Minneapolis, which was basically a ghetto of Jews and blacks, Um, uh, and there were a lot of housing restrictions on both of them. And it was only really after World War II that the Jews were able to break out. Um, and they all ended up in one suburb, most of them called St. Louis park where you and I grew up and, um, uh, a suburb that had been a hundred percent white Protestant, Catholic, uh, uh, Scandinavian basically, and German overnight became 20% Jewish white Protestant, Catholic, and Scandinavian. And I actually saw in my life, uh, I actually experienced the building of pluralism between sort of a minority and a majority and, um, uh, it wasn't perfect. Um there were broken hearts and broken dates and um uh and muttered anti-Semitism. But in the end, um we all kind of came together. Um and the um uh the the non-Jewish, you know, those non-Jewish Scandinavians came to appreciate sort of the neurotic um uh obsession of these Jews with education and and we appreciated their their spirit of of, of pluralism which they brought over basically from Scandinavia and, and together We combusted and built an amazing community. So that was the first introduction I had to pluralism. It was where and how I grew up. And I also saw that work at the Minnesota state level where politics was very moderate. My mother was a radical liberal, but she voted 12 times for Bill Frenzel for Congress, who was the Republican congressman, because she thought he was a decent, nice guy. And uh, Bill Frenzel used to run for office with just a billboard on Highway 100, and all it said was Frenzel for Congress. Didn't even say which party he was from. So that was the milieu that I grew up with. And and as I've written in many ways, my journalism over the last 40 years is always looking for Minnesota. You know, looking to recreate that model. Um, Now, uh, then it came to what I learned. Um, So uh, what I learned in the world um, by by traveling um, to two realms in particular, I traveled to cutting edge companies in Silicon Valley. And I traveled to endangered ecosystems. Those were sort of the two things I did for the last four years. And what you learn, um, uh, and I traveled obviously to countries, uh, Lebanon, I worked in, Israel, the Middle East, all over. And what I learned from that was that the ecosystems that are the most diverse, um, but have healthy interdependencies between their diverse elements, Um, uh, that can build complex adaptive networks, basically. Those are the healthiest ecosystems in nature. And what I also learned at the same time was that in politics, the countries that embrace pluralism, education pluralism, religious pluralism, um, gender pluralism, and ultimately media and political pluralism, um, in other words, that embraced all those diversities, they were actually the healthiest countries. Um, They're the countries that could adapt and keep up with the pace of change. So to the extent that I have a world, it's really built on on promoting, enriching, highlighting, spotlighting um, countries, people, and communities that um, basically uh, work to build gender pluralism, religious pluralism, education pluralism, media pluralism, and ultimately political pluralism.
1: Let me... uh... I want to stay on your upbringing just for a minute. In our leadership course at, at the University of Miami Law School, you know, the, one of the first things we do is we ask each student to talk about their narrative, you know, the essential moments and events in their lives, so the, the people, the coaches, the teachers that really influenced them to a place where they they gained certain beliefs and they set them off in the right direction or the wrong direction at times. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit about. You know, some of the maybe an event or some people that were highly influential in the person you are now. And then I wanna I wanna go back again and and ask you over the t- over the last 40 years or so, since you've been on this journey of yours, um, has your style changed so, at all? Um, and how you so the people
0: me? who the most, and you know, one of them was Hattie Steinberg. She was this amazing journalism teacher I had at St. Louis Park High School in tenth grade. And Hattie really taught me the fundamentals of journalism. In fact, her journalism course in Room Three Hundred and Thirteen at St. Louis Park High School is the only journalism course I've ever taken. Not because I was so good, but because she was that good, and um, she had a huge influence on my life. And I've I've written about her. Um, but uh, beyond that, you know, I've had I've had lots of great you know mentors along the way. I, the Abe Rosenthal, the editor of the New York Times, who hired me, who, who could be fiercely tyrannical person in his, in his leadership style. But um, he was a fierce defender of objectivity and the neutrality of the New York Times um, and, and that you are not the story. You know, Mark, my, my apartment was blown up in Beirut in 1982 in the first week of the war between Israel and Lebanon. And uh, my driver's wife and two daughters were killed in my apartment. I had to help dig them out one of the worst days of my life. The New York Times would not let me write about it. Think about that. Their attitude was, you're not the story. Okay. Look at all the other people in Beirut whose apartments have been blown up, who have lost loved ones. You're not the story. Now they eventually let me write a small box because other people were writing about it. But that was that was such a different journalism culture than today. Today it's I tweeted about it, I Facebooked about it. You know, if somebody bumps you or scratches your finger, you know, you you write a whole piece about it. Um And so, so he, those people had, uh, Abe had a big influence on me. Um, uh, Yitzhak Rabin and and, uh, um, uh, Shimon Peres were, I I both knew very well. And uh, they had a big influence on me because they were, they were people who changed very late in life. They taught me that old people, older people, now I'm an old person at 68. um, They were probably younger than me when I was watching them. Um, But there's something beautiful about old people changing their mind. You know, I felt that watching Joe Biden, you know, the other day on television. Um, So uh, those are just a few examples I would put out there.
1: Have you changed your mind along the way in the way you you do your work? Has your style changed from the early years to now? Or have you stayed kind of consistent? I know you have a value set, but is there any aspect of your 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 work that is, has changed in style? My
0: style hasn't changed, but I've learned a lot along the way. You know, uh, I've learned many lessons. The biggest lesson is the biggest mistakes I made were when I was talking when I should have been listening. Um, and uh, I supported, actually didn't support that. I had a crazy position on Afghanistan and Iraq. Crazy in that it was just particular to me. I actually believe Afghanistan wasn't important at all. And so I was not against going there to get bin Laden, but I was totally against nation building there. My view was that if you fix Afghanistan, you fix Afghanistan. But I did believe if you fix Iran, you actually have to change the whole Arab world. And, and that worked out horribly. And for that, I have nothing but regret. So uh, you, you have to learn from your mistakes. And sometimes you're so focused on something and believing your thing that you're talking when you should be listening.
1: Well, I can really relate to that. Uh, I've got to do, had to learn over the years to just be quiet and listen, because it's certainly a quality that a leader must have, you know, to, to make make the best decisions. I want to go outside the box. And I, I don't know that that's a bad idea at this moment. I, I always think about, you know, the coincidental moment or the fork in the road that might have changed. For me, it was, I'm a law student studying for uh, exams in the in the spring I'm minding my own business. I co-cook some chicken down by the pool and I run into a defensive backfield coach, Mike Archer. And uh, two weeks later, um, I've gone from a journey to having a, a corner a corner office on Brickle Avenue in Miami in, uh, um, you know, uh, some type of, of defense law and trial work, you know, to being a football coach. Was there that moment, you know, I think we all have, and when we look back, especially as... At our age, time we look back and we kind of see how the universe was wired together and that fork in the road. You know, that was a big fork in the road because coaching was not even on my mind. Right. So maybe journalism was on your mind. But was there that moment that you can think about or moments that, that come to mind? Well,
0: um, you know, I took journalism in high school and then I worked for my college, uh, my high school paper and, and, and just a very little for my college paper. Uh, but I really got started as a journalist, not as a reporter, the way most people do, but actually as a columnist. Uh, it was 1975, and I was in London. I just met this girl from Des Moines named Ann Buxbaum, and um, uh, she was studying at the London School of Economics. I was studying at the School of Oriental and African Studies. At the time, Jimmy Carter was running against Gerald Ford for president. And um, Anne and I were walking down a street in London, and um, the Evening Standard newspaper there, you know, they always have these red newsstand boxes, and, and they would always have the paper out with a blaring headline, you know, Brad to Jen, we're finished, or get you to buy the paper. And that day, the blaring headline said, Carter to Jews, colon, if elected, I promise to fire Dr. K. Carter to Jews, colon, if elected, I promise to fire Dr. K. And I stopped my then girlfriend, now wife, Ann, and said, look at that, look at that headline. Um, Jimmy Carter's running for president. And he's trying to win Jewish votes by promising to fire the first ever Jewish secretary of state. That's really odd. And I have no idea what possessed me, Mark. But I went back to my dorm room and I wrote a column about it. For nobody. I just wrote a column about it. And my then girlfriend, now wife, happened to be a neighbor in Des Moines of Gilbert Cranberg, who is a then legendary editorial page editor of the Des Moines Register. And Ann took my column home on vacation, walked it over to his house, handed it to him. He liked it. He printed it on a half page of the Des Moines Register with a big out cartoon. And they paid me $50. And I thought that was the coolest thing in the whole world. I had been walking down the street. I had an opinion. I wrote it up. And someone paid me $50. And I was hooked ever after on wanting to be
1: a journalist and a columnist. Yeah, and fortunately, you ran across that headline on that day. You weren't sick in bed or you weren't at the beach with Anne. You happened to just see that. And uh, I think we all have those moments where, you know, if I wasn't hungry at five o'clock in the afternoon on that day to go cook chicken, we wouldn't be talking today. We'd probably ju- we would probably we wouldn't have this opportunity. So um, this was an amazing day. I wanted to uh, something that hit me you know thinking about you and i and and these journeys we've been on i've always said that coaching is not a simple game it's a complex science it really is a science and it's a coach's job or a leader's job because you can to take the most complex of sciences which i think football is and make it simple because it's not blocking and tackling and what i think i have the expert of all time on taking highly complex Issues, be it technology, geopolitics, climate change. And I listened to you on a 10 minute interview with Anderson Cooper, and you've broken it all down for the high school student. If they want to understand it, they can listen to Tom Friedman. He's going to tell you exactly what it's all about. How does that happen? How can you, where does that come from, taking the most complex, interconnected subjects and turning them into the most simple? of ideas and 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 where uh, the every man can understand it. Well, Mark, if, a if I knew where
0: it came from, I would bottle it Thought call <laughs> it It's uh, something that happens chemically in my brain. But the way I describe it to people is I tell them, I'm actually, what is my job? What is my business? I'm a translator from English to English. That's what I do. I translate from English to English. I take complex subjects uh, that people are expressing in English and I break them down first so I can understand them. Uh, whether it's how a microchip works or uh, how the climate system works uh, or how Beirut works, and then I explain it um, in terms that I can. One of my mottos is you know, you can make a point or you can tell a story, always tell a story because the story will carry in at your point and so many others. And always remember the best selling book in the history of the world is just a collection of stories, it's called the Bible. So, um so I try to simplify things and, um, uh, and then put them in story form so they're very easily digestible. In my column the other day, I could tell you that, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of countries in the Middle East like Afghanistan that can't govern themselves anymore. But instead I told a story that when uh, Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, came to Lebanon last year, he was greeted with a petition from 50,000 Lebanese would France reoccupy Lebanon again? People just, I don't have to make the point. People just need to read that story and they know, you know, what what, what I'm talking about. So I'm always alive I'm, uh, to, to the people's stories and, and conveying things. I also, I do believe that um, simplicity is really important. One of my favorite essays is by a guy named Andy Haldane, who worked for the the Bank of England, and he wrote this after the 2008 financial crisis. And he wrote it about all the efforts to regulate, you know, the market after 2008. And um, the essay is built around this central question that he asked. Why are dogs better than humans at catching a Frisbee? Why are dogs better than humans at catching a Frisbee? And his answer is that because they keep it simple. They just focus on one thing, their angle vis-a-vis this moving object. And um, uh, and so those are kind of just some of my techniques. I try to be a good translator, not to be a good translator from English to English, though you need great professors. So I find people like Nanda Nilakani, the Indian entrepreneur who led emphasis when I wrote The World is Flat there. I, I, I know the people who can already speak my language, who can take a complex subject like globalization or microchips and translate it for me. And then I can translate it for others.
1: Yeah, that, that's a perfect segue to what I wanted to ask you about it. You know, it's obvious that I think you're a leader. You can argue against that, but I think you're a leader and I, and I think I'm a leader and people would argue against that. But leaders are passionate. I think leaders care about what they're doing and care about the people that they're doing it with. And to do that, um, to really be a great leader, I think you have to have relationships and authentic relationships. And you obviously... Over the years, have created a lot of authentic relationships. Where I mean, when Tom Friedman picks up the phone and dials a number, presses send or whatever, you know, people are going to pick up when they see your name because you have relationships with them. You know, what is about you that has allowed you to have that kind of access? And obviously, it's through relationships. But 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 tell Uh, me more. That's a good point,
0: Mark. And um, uh, I did a column a few months ago um, after President Biden was elected. and and he was talking about withdrawing from afghanistan or maybe announced it um this was months ago before it actually happened um and i, I the whole column was built around the fact that the first time i went to afghanistan and the first time joe biden went to afghanistan was in 2001 shortly after 9 11. um uh or it might have been in early 2002 i, I can't remember but pretty sure it's 2001. um and we went together he was then senator joe biden uh, chairman of the senate foreign relations committee and he called me up and said how'd you like to come with me to Afghanistan? And we went and we encountered the country together for the first time. Um, and so that was, that was really uh, a huge insight. You know, I think one of the keys I have, Mark, is that, you know, the last four years of Trump were a very bitter, divisive time. And you had to either be on one side or the other. Um, if you saw the world the way I did, and you saw Donald Trump as, as a, someone who really was, I think, a danger to our democracy. But I am by nature not a political person. Um, I have lots of Republican friends who I play golf with. I, I, I listen to I have lots of Republican twitches. I'm super pro-business, super pro-trade, super pro-globalization. You know, I am that true centrist. Um, and, uh, and so I don't judge people normally on their political views, um, uh, even when I disagree with them. I mean, I can still find I can agree with them on many other things. So I've learned a long time ago, people don't actually listen through their ears, they listen through their stomach. And uh, if you can make a gut connection with people, they actually don't care about the details. If you can't make a gut connection with people, you can't show them enough details. And so that's always been my method to my madness. I try to connect with people. And that's why the book I'm working on is called What You Say When You Listen. Um, because listening is important for two reasons. One is what you learn when you listen, you learn a lot. And as I said, all the stories I got wrong, were because I was talking when I should have been listening. Um, but the more important thing is what you say when you listen, listening is a sign of respect. And it's amazing what people will let you say to them if they think you respect them. And if they don't think you respect them, you can't tell them that the sun is shining.
1: No, that's exactly right, and that kind of leads me into trust. You know, as being you know, people that you have relationships that you talk with, they trust that you're going to use the information wisely and confidentially, and so forth. And I wanted to bring our your very good friend and my friend Dove into it a little bit because you talk about him at times. You've had conversations with him, and I I know he's kind of a go to guy. And you know, Dove defined it it trust. I think beautifully as a legal performance enhancing drug. You know, and, uh, you know, he talks about why trust is so important. And you've got to be able to, you know, from your perspective, see trust as a very important element to your job. And I just wanted to, you know, have you hit on that a little bit with maybe even talk about some of the great leaders that have trusted you along the way and what their strengths were. Just maybe a couple of examples. Yeah, but no, trust
0: is really the coin of the realm, as my friend George used to say. Um, and it, it's actually everything because, um, when, when there's trust in the room, uh, it's like a hard floor. You can dunk a basketball, even if you're a five seven little guy from Minnesota, if you can jump off a hard floor. The absence of trust is like the Syrian desert. You can't jump a millimeter. So back in 2002, Saudi Arabia's King Abdullah decided he wanted to put out a peace plan. And he invited me to Saudi Arabia to be the one we put it out through. And um, that was because he trusted me. by the way, we weren't pals at all. I'd written very critically about Saudi Arabia. but he knew that um, that I'd be an honest guy that I if he if he said it uh, and said it well and straight, that I would write it that way. and that I and that if it came from me because readers trusted me, then he would be able to leverage my trust to get his voice out. And that's really what what you want in this business I'm not a, you know, um, some beautiful guy or gal that anyone wants to talk to. You know, I'm a little nebbish from Minnesota. I, I, you know, I don't exactly command the room when I walk in. Um, but my, I, my trust is your currency in your column. And when people, readers trust you, um, uh, and lots of readers around the world trust you, that is huge leverage because then leaders know that if they persuade you, of their point of view and you share that point of view in their in your column, it will actually reach a lot, a lot more people than than people maybe who are their trained SEALs who just say what they want to hear. And so um uh you know as a reader, as a writer, excuse me, I want my favorite comment from a reader is the reader who writes and says, you know, I don't usually agree with you, but I, I like that point you made today. I hate reading you, but I made it, and I always write them back and say, you know, I, I so appreciate that because what it says is, even though we disagree, you want to know what I have to say. That means there's something going on between me and that reader. There's some level of trust. They know this guy's a, this guy's. I hate what he says, but he's he's not dishonest. He's not trying to be dishonest. You know, this is a guy who's on a journey of inquiry. He sees the truth differently from me, but there's something. In there that I respect and so because of that people will get more mad at me when I disagree with them or they disagree with me but um, uh, that's that to me is what it's all about building that trusted relationship between you and your reader and you and your sources
1: yeah that, that that's awesome I wanted to hit you on something that since I I read thank you um, I wanted to k- kind of address and create some some uh, comparisons Uh, you've interviewed and talked with and had relationships with so many leaders prior to 2007, right? And I kind of wanted to ask you what, name a leader, what what leadership looked like prior to 2007. A little bit later, maybe we can talk about what leadership is today in these years of exponential acceleration and what it's gonna look like a little bit later on. But what did a leader look like to you you know, back prior to two thousand seven, and in your in your travels, a good leader and and some well, of the characteristics. A
0: good leader, and, and I would say Steve Jobs, who I who I knew was was this, even though he could be a very difficult person, is to know you want something before you know you know you want something. So Steve Jobs knew that we wanted a um, uh, a. a um, iPhone before we knew we wanted an iPhone. He knew we wanted a iPad before we knew we wanted an iPad. Um, uh, you know, and um, uh, that to me is that's a that's a very different kind of leadership. It's kind of a, uh, a an entrepreneurial leadership. Um, but he he really um, uh, he really had that. Um, I mean, you are talking about? People before you know, two thousand seven. You know, um, obviously, Anwar Sadat was a leader. You know, he was ready to go against all the currents of history in his neighborhood and fly to Jerusalem and offer to make peace with Menachem Begin. You know, that's again the example of the old guy changing his mind. Yeah. Those are, those are, those are.
1: Yeah. Are there differences between maybe you could you know Are there differences between political and corporate leaders? Or is there? are they substantially the same well, thing? Well, they
0: are because corporate leaders are responsible to shareholders and employees. And um, uh, political leaders are responsible to voters. And those are different constituencies. But good leadership in both is, is the same. It's telling people it's having a vision, leading people at that vision, telling people what they want to hear, sometimes making really hard decisions that hurt people, firing people uh, and the like. And um, uh, but but uh, but staying the course and being a good listener and trusting people with the truth, because when you trust your employees, your customers, uh, your citizens with the truth, they trust
1: you back. You know, in uh, in our law school class, you know, we talk a lot about leaders, the must of leaders. And, you know, two things are really humility and self-awareness. You know, those are those are big. And, you know, Dove talked about it uh, when you asked him about Mandela. Right. And Mandela said, you know, the most important leadership attribute is humility. And I don't I think, you know, without humility, as we found out over the last four or five years, there's going to be chaos everywhere. And so I I just want to. What are your thoughts on that? You
0: know, the point Doug made was that Mandela made himself small so others could be big. He made himself small so others could be big. And he, 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 he he led through them. Uh, in in that way, I think it's very very important, you know. Um, and I, I again, because I'm I'm not leading anybody except my assistant Gwen Gorman, you know, uh, in the in the physical sense, yeah. You know? But um, I I try to have my influence through my column, through inspiring, informing, um, uh, sometimes agitating people to think about the world in a different way. But again, the way you lead in my profession is very different. You have to lead with that humility. Um, you, can't, you can't be up there on Mount Olympus and say, because I said it, it's true. That's when journalists get in trouble. I don't need an editor. No, everybody needs an editor. Just like a player would say, I don't need a coach. No, actually, everybody needs a coach. Um, and so you, you've got when to know when to lead and when to reach out at the same time.
1: Yeah, I just believe it's it's incredibly important that, you know, as leaders, we put our followers and the people that we influence first. OK, so this has been awesome. I want to finish up with just a couple of things. OK, um, and if you don't mind, I wanted to talk about what I consider the other leader in your family. And that's Ann. So so last week, last Sunday, I'm watching a morning show. And of course, Tom Friedman's always on a morning show. And he was. Um, and he did a great job and of course it's been a humongous week for you i'm sure you've been enormously busy with the events around the world in afghanistan and then i switched over to my recordings cuz i always watch sunday morning and uh and i i turn it on and there's there's ann friedman you know a leader in dc a leader in philanthropy and and there's tom friedman taking pictures of her proudly and uh i just uh i thought uh you know, I, I I needed to just take a minute and and let you talk about her and what she's done in the community and what she's doing there. You know, as a leader in her own well, way. in
0: my world, you know, um, Mark, I, I am now Mr. Ann Friedman, and rightly so, uh, because Ann had a vision eight years ago. Of she had been a reading teacher of building a museum of language arts that promote reading literacy and love of language, and um, she went out and hired some consultants and and uh, uh, sort of developed the idea, she created a board, um, she went out and uh, got some museum designers, and um, uh, and she was in a position to fund it herself uh, up to a point, and then got the mayor of Washington, D.C. to give her one of the most historic buildings in D.C. would have been completely run down, the, the Franklin School at 13th and K. And she turned it into Planet Word, the world's first um, uh, interactive, voice-activated museum about reading, literacy, and love of books. And CBS Morning News did a wonderful piece on her last Sunday. And um, uh, we were just talking about it last night, not in a self-congratulatory way, because people now call her and say, how do I start? I want to start a museum like you did. And, um, uh, and we were just talking about if they only knew how hard it was, you know, um, how many obstacles she overcome to um, get to where that morning show is, uh, you know, uh, what, what it profiled that CBS. So my wife is a real leader. Um, uh, uh, she's, uh, she's tough, but she listens and she knows how to attract good people and, and inspire people, um, by a vision. She had a really big vision, um, to be fair and and uh, brutally honest. And, um, uh, I've, I've learned a lot watching her.
1: Yes, she had a vision. She had a proactive plan to get it done. And like every leader, she had an inner circle. Were you part of that inner circle? I was
0: early points and for a long while, the inner circle, (laughs) the only part of it. So uh, it's been it's been a great labor of love for her and it's been great to see it executed.
1: Okay, let's go one one. A couple of final things. I know I'm extending um, my time here, but I got to talk about golf just for a minute. Okay, So I've been playing real. I had both my hips replaced. I hadn't really played golf. I, I grew up with friends who had golf memberships, but we didn't. And I know you had an opportunity. You can talk about that if you want, because I'd, I'd like you to. But now I had my hips replaced. And during the pandemic, golf was my life. And I not only love to play it, but I like to practice it. And uh, And I know it's a big part of your getaway in your life. So um, it's a passion for you. I, I just want you to take a minute tell her how it started, and most importantly, you know th- this. I think is big. What it's taught you about yourself and what it teaches you about well, Um
0: uh growing up in Sam's Park, as you and I did, Mark, there was uh, there were two uh, country clubs there that the Jews could get into. Frankly, Brookview and Oak Ridge, and um, my parents belonged to Brookview, and so I grew up playing golf with my dad after work every every night during the week and on weekends. I played with my dad a lot, and so. Grew up with a passion for the game, which I've kept all my life. Caddied in the U.S. Open in 1970 for Chichi Rodriguez at Hazeltine. That was just an absolutely great, uh, exciting moment. Um, and uh, here I am uh, next week um, in Baltimore. They're hosting the BMW, um, uh, the last tournament before the FedEx Cup playoffs. And I'm actually going to be a walking scorer. So um uh, still always trying to get inside the ropes. Golf is a, such a great game for learning because one of the things it teaches you is what you alluded to, Mark. Um, it's really a game where you get out of it what you put into it. You know, Gary Player used to say, the more I practice, the luckier I get. The more I practice, the luckier I get, you know. And um, uh, at the same time, it's a game of rules that you call fouls on yourself. Imagine in football, if a if an offensive lineman went over to the referees or the ref, I, I was holding that guy. I didn't mean to, but I was holding that guy. We're going to walk back ten yards. You know, uh, knowing golf that you you actually you actually do that. It's also a game that really mirrors life because it's played on an uneven surface, and because it's on an uneven surface, it's full of good and bad bounces that you have nothing to do with. Sometimes the ball bounces in the water. Sometimes it bounces in the hole, and therefore it's a game where your ability to play it successfully all depends how you react to those good and bad bounces. Uh, because it's in your control. You can react to them by blaming your caddy, throwing your bag in the water, and stalking off the course. You can react by saying, I'll, I'll do better next time. And so um, there's a very famous golf story which I told, and thank you for being late, where the same guy who caddy for Greg Norman caddy for Tom Watson um, for many years. Um, and um, uh, he was asked once, What was the difference between Greg Norman and Tom Watson? And he said, well, it's very simple, you know, they'd each hit a 300-yard drive down the middle of the fairway, and and Norman's drive would end in a divot. And he'd exclaim, if I didn't have bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. I'm so unlucky. This is so unfair. I have such bad luck. Can you believe this? It was Bruce Edwards telling the story, Tom Watson's longtime caddy. Tom Watson's ball would go down the middle of the fairway, end up in a divot, and he would turn to Bruce and say, Bruce, watch this watch this. So I, I've always used that as a motto, you know, I mean, um, you know, when you're in a divot, you can whine and complain about it, or you can just look at yourself in the world and just say, watch this baby.
1: Thank you, Tom. Thank you for, for being with us. Good luck with the next book. Can't wait to read it. And, uh, I know you got uh, a very busy day ahead and we're, we're all grateful uh, that you would spend really it a pleasure with us. Thank, Thank you. you. Before we close it out today, I do want to thank our sound engineer, Christopher Elzadi, for his professional work on this project, Uh, to our research assistant and fellow attorney, Nick Rossi, who's done a great job in in background and uh, gathering information and data for us, to our music by Calyptra, and to the one and only Greg Levy, our executive producer, associate dean, and director of entertainment arts and the sports law program at UM Law. Thank you, everybody.